The word of our Lord from the Gospel of John says, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. At that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. He who has who has my commandments and keeps them. It is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And so Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world? So Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which I hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us, your servants, your grace. By the confession of a true faith, to acknowledge the glory of your eternal trinity. And in the power of your divine majesty to worship your unity. Keep us steadfast in this faith and worship. And bring us at last to see you in your one and eternal glory, O Father, who with the Son and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen. We speak of the Scriptures as the revelation of God. More particularly, we speak of them as God's self-revelation. Because in the Scriptures, God reveals Himself to us. The Scriptures, according to Orthodox Christian faith, are not man's attempt to try to understand God or try to explain God, but instead, they're the story of God intervening in history and intervening in our lives beginning with the people of Israel. 
Specifically, you can even go back before Israel, before their founding. And the scriptures tell us the story of how God has met his people and how he has made himself known to his people. When we think of the Trinity, when we celebrate the biblical reality of the Trinity on this Trinity Sunday, we must keep in mind that God has revealed himself to us in scriptures in a couple of particular ways. Without wavering, the scriptures tell us that there is only one true and living God. He has revealed himself to us as one. There's not a multitude of gods. There's not a pantheon of gods. There is one true and living God. And he created all things other than himself. As John says in his prologue, he created through his word, his eternal word, all things that have been created. And so there is one uncreated one. There is one true and living God. There is one from which all of the worlds have come to exist. But the scriptures also tell us without hesitation that there are three divine persons who share in this oneness. I'll be honest with you, I, I dislike referring to the Trinity as the doctrine of the Trinity. Not that that's not a proper way of speaking of it, but when we think doctrine, we think bullet points. Kind of points of study that we got to keep in mind. Whereas if God is indeed triune, this is not just something to bear in mind. This is something that begins to shape all of our theology. So it's not just a point of doctrinal importance. It is the reality of who God is and how he has revealed himself to us, his people. Someone once said, try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity and you'll lose your mind. Try to deny it and you'll lose your soul. The Trinity is ultimately a mystery. Because it's a mystery doesn't mean it's an impossibility. Because it's a mystery doesn't mean it just doesn't add up. The fact that the Trinity is a mystery underscores the fact that there are some things that we can't get our minds around. C.S. Lewis said, if you can fit God into your mind, that's an awfully small God. There is clear differentiation between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that is attested to throughout the Scriptures. Perhaps even most pointedly in the words of your Bibles that are printed in red. Those of Jesus Himself. In His words, you can't help but realize that when He refers to the Father, He is referring to someone else. In fact, He identifies Himself throughout John's Gospel as the one who has been sent by the Father. Specifically, He refers to Himself as, uh, or refers to the Father as the sending me Father. He refers 
here to the Holy Spirit over and over again on Maundy Thursday, the night that he was betrayed, the night that he met one last time with his disciples, the night that ended with the Garden of Gethsemane and his arrest. And here in John chapter, beginning at chapter 13 and moving on through chapter 17, you have several chapters and quite a bit of dialogue given, mostly monologue, between Jesus and His disciples. So much of these pages are covered in red letters. And Jesus is beginning to unpack for His disciples what He has been hinting toward throughout their time with Him. That He is going away, but they would not be left alone. That the Spirit was coming. And that the Spirit who he refers to as a person, would be sent by the Father on behalf of the Son. And so you've got clear differentiation between these three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all throughout the Scriptures. Yet throughout the Scriptures, we are called to worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, even as we are warned to worship only the one true God and no other. And so the doctrine of the mystery of the Trinity was affirmed and explained by the early church. That somehow, in God's great mystery, He is one God, but three persons. The scriptures tell us that we have been created in God's image. The imago Dei, that, that Latin phrase that, that is the image of God. We have been created in that image. And in the beginning, God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make man after our likeness. And they go on to explain that in the image of God, He created Adam and Eve. He created them male and female in His very image. And being created in God's image, we're given the, the, the purpose and the privilege to both know and love God. We've been created with a capacity to know Him and an ability to love Him. As some have said through song and other forms of media, we have a God-shaped hole in ourselves. We have been created to know Him. We have been created to love Him. We have been created like Him. That was the great lie that the serpent told Eve. God doesn't want you to be like Him. But God had already created Eve in His very own image. To know Him. To love Him. To enjoy Him. The Scriptures also tell us that not only are we created in the image of God, but Paul tells, uh, uh, tells us in his letters that Christ is the eternal image of the Father. And we have been redeemed by this image who has made man for our sakes. And so Christ came and He revealed Himself, revealed the Father to us. That's early on in, in the disciples' evening on Maundy Thursday. They're, they're wrestling with, wait a minute, 
Where are you going away? Just tell us. Just show us the Father, Jesus. And Jesus says, I, have I been with you so long that you don't understand? If you see me, you see the Father. You see what the Father looks like. You see how He loves. You see how He gives of Himself. You see what He lives like. You've been with me for three years. And I've revealed Him to you. And in being redeemed by the image of God, not only does that that eternal image, Jesus, the incarnate one, not only does He reveal the Father to us, but God the Father loves us through Him and bestows His love and His mercy and His grace upon us through Him to redeem us. But the Scriptures tell us also that God's image in us through salvation, through trust in Christ, is restored and recreated. As we put our faith in this one who Paul refers to as the image of the invisible God, as we put our lives into Him, God begins the work of restoring and recreating that image which had been broken and lost in the fall. So what? What does all this mean? What does all this matter to us? There's always a tension between doctrine and practice. There's always a tension, you might say, between theology and application. There's always that tension, uh, if, if you're more of the academic, between orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And that tension's a good tension. Because all throughout Paul's letters... You've got that tension at play where Paul will begin his letters talking about doctrine, talking about what God has done, talking about what proper Christian belief ought to be. But then the last half of his letters, he's always teasing that out. Okay, then how does this affect our lives? How does this begin to shape us, shape our behavior, shape our relationships and shape our interactions with one another? How does this affect the church's position in the world? And how does this affect our position as stewards of God and servants of God ministering among the people of the world that God has created? You might call this tension a tension between heart and life. Between what we believe and how we should then live. You probably have heard the title of Francis Schaeffer's appropriately named book, How Should We Then Live? And on this Trinity Sunday, I think it's important for us to keep in mind what we mean when we speak of the Trinity, but also how the Trinity begins to inform and influence the way we live our lives, the way we interact with one another and the world, the way we live as God's people. And I want to share with you four implications for this triune image being restored in us and recreated in us and influencing how we ought to live.
the first influence that the triune image ought to have on our lives is that we should live in community together. As Jesus is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the early church and in the life of the church that will soon be be born at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus talks about the church as having a very unusual family type unity in the bond of the Holy Spirit. That there's a sharedness of life. That there's a fellowship and a communion together as God's people. As God's Spirit indwells His people. And as God's Spirit works through and among His people. We should live together in community. We live in community through worship. As we gather as God's people and together sing praises and together read the scriptures and pray prayers. As we together receive the elements of communion. As we together baptize. As we together celebrate God's work among us. As the worshiping body of Christ. We find our lives enriched and strengthened. We should live in community together through fellowship. The church is more than just a worshiping body. The church that is not rightly worshiping is failing to be the church. But the, worship, but the church that doesn't do more than worship is also failing. Because it is in fellowship that we also live in community together. As we share time together. As we interact with one another. Our time before service and after service. Over coffee and tea. Those are important and precious times. Our time gathering around tables together, going out to lunch together. Our time having one another over into our homes and allowing the kids to play together. Our time in small groups. Our time just living life together in fellowship is an important time and we should live in community together. That is an expression of Rightfully so of God's image in us. He created us for community. He created us to know Him and love Him. He created us to know and love one another. And He created us even ultimately to, to, to know and love ourselves in the proper sense as God's people made in His image. We should live in community together, not just through worship and fellowship, but also through discipleship. As we grow together, as we shape one another, there ought to be a sense of sharedness in our discipling together. It is important that we be accountable to one another and be in ministry with one another. Discipleship is not just about accumulating knowledge about God. Discipleship is about faithfulness in following Him. 
And accountability in our lives helps us to be faithful in following Him. And ministry is the expression of our, in our lives of what following Him looks like. Consider this. God brings us to Himself through others. He brings us to Himself through others. In a practical sense, He's brought you here this morning through the influence of others. Even if you happen to have just found out about our church on a website, somebody put together that website. Somebody maintains it. But more than likely, you're here because someone said, hey, you ought to come to church with me. God works in our lives and He brings us to Himself through the influence of others. Through community. Through relationships. Which is, again, an expression of His image in our lives. And not only does He bring us to Himself through others, we grow closer to Him with the help of others. I don't know if you've ever tried to live the Christian life on an island, but if you have, you've probably realized that it's virtually impossible. You just don't have the strength in yourself to do that. Nor were you intended to live the Christian life on your own. You are intended to live the Christian life in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for Pentecost. But in the context of God's people. In the context of this worship and fellowship and discipleship that we have together as we live in community together. And so God brings us to Himself through others. We grow even closer to Him with the help of others. But we also remain close to Him by the strength of others. There are times in my life when I don't have the strength within me to press on. But thank God He has put others in my life who are able to tell me, You have to, Adam. Whether you want to or think you can, you have to. We remain close to God by the strength of others. Jesus said multiple times here in the text that we've read this morning, if you love me, keep my commandments. And it's interesting that his final instructions really contained two things. Number one, love one another as he loves us. Remember he told them that after he washed their feet on that very same night in chapter 13. Love one another as I have loved you. And also share the good news of that love with the whole world. We call that the Great Commission. After Christ was resurrected from the dead, before He ascended to the Father's right hand, and before Pentecost, He told His disciples, You must make disciples of all nations 
You must preach the gospel to all nations. Again, if you love me, keep my commandments. We should live in community together. Secondly, we should live for the sake of others. Now, you've, if you've been around long at all, you're probably sick and tired of me hearing that, or sick and tired of hearing me say that. But we should. And I'll continue saying it until we do. We should live for the sake of others. I should take that back. Some of you are doing that quite well. Keep at it. There is an unusual way of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is talking about. In fact, he says that I'm going to go away and the world won't see me, but you'll see me, which gets the disciples to start scratching their heads. Wait a minute, what are you talking about, Jesus? And he says, the Holy Spirit is going to come, whom the world can't receive, but you can, because he's already working among you and he's with you and he'll soon be in you. And so he's describing this unusual way that God is working through his Holy Spirit. And you know, living for the sake of others is a very, very unusual way to live. It is completely contradictory to the, to the, the, the popular theories of how life ought to be lived that we find in the world. We're told all day, every day, through the TV, through commercials, through the posters we see at the mall, through politicians and celebrities through through sports athletes and through teachers even that we're the most important that we ought to live for ourselves that we ought to do what makes us happy after all if it makes you happy it can't be that bad but again Jesus says if you love me keep my commandments And when pressed, Jesus summarized all of the commands of God in two simple words. Number one, love God with everything you are and have. And number two, love your neighbor as if he were your very own self. If you love me, keep my commandments. Because we have been created in God's image and because that image is a triune image of three persons living eternally in fellowship and love with one another, in giving of themselves to one another. Jesus said, I don't have any life in myself. I receive life from the Father who sent me. He said, in fact, here, the words that I'm saying that the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of the Holy Spirit's not going to speak on His own. He's going to speak what I've said. And what I've said is not even my own words. But they're the words that I hear my Father saying. That triune image in which we have been created ought to lead us to live for the sake of others. To live giving ourselves for their benefit. Giving of ourselves for their betterment. And that's everyone. That's easy to say, oh, we ought to love everybody. Like from the movie Nacho Libre, 
We love all the orphans in the whole world. Okay, well, what orphans are you really caring for? In the here and the now, which ones are you pouring your life into? It's easy to talk about loving the whole world. It's very difficult to start talking about what it means to actually love my neighbor and to love my enemy. But the gospel calls us and the image of God within us calls us to live for the sake of others, to give of ourselves for them. Not only do the words of Jesus, if you love me, keep my commandments, haunt us, but also his words, to whom much is given, from that one much will be required. Those words haunt us. We have been given as God's people so much. Not just in the way of material blessings, but in the way of spiritual blessings. In the way of relational blessings, the the connections that we have with one another, the ability to be able to pick up the phone and lay our burdens out to one another. I don't know about you, but if I need to empty a burden on somebody, if I'm calling one of you guys, y'all won't even let me pay for coffee when I get together with you. I mean, that's a pretty big blessing. Not only do you have to listen to me gripe or listen to, to, to all my problems, you've got to pay for the coffee that I'm drinking. We should live for the sake of others. We've been given so much. We are spiritually rich. We are relationally rich. And we ought to see the goodness that God's involvement in our lives through the church has done and say, you know what? That ought to be shared with others. We invite people to church, not so we can boost numbers, because, but because we want them to experience the joy of what we've found. We go and do ministry for, for those living, children living without their families and, and for shut-ins, not because that helps pay the bills, but because that's what ought to be done. They ought to know that God loves them. They ought to know that people care about them, that they're not forgotten. As Jesus said, I'll not leave you as orphans, I'll come to you. So also are we given the opportunity in the lives of others to say, you'll not be alone. I'll be there. And I'll live for your sake. Thirdly, we should live with a sense of joy, excitement, and anticipation. Just as when I told the kids, I've got a surprise for you. It was a little surprise. Some of them were able to guess what it probably was. They got some stickers. But just as their minds started thinking, what could it be? What could it be? Wait a minute, it's on the clipboard. It's got to be something little. I wonder what it is. Ooh, if it's stickers, I wonder what kind of stickers. When they saw they had two stickers, immediately I see the first one. What's the second one going to be? Are they going to be the same, different? Just as children captivated by the intrigue and sheer fun of a great mystery, so also did the early church seem to be just captivated by what might come about, by how life might play out. Even in facing persecution, 
the history of the church and its testimony to our lives is that there can be a life lived with a sense of joy, excitement, and anticipation even in the midst of heartache and hardship. Too often we are overcome with trepidation and timidity. We worry about what comes next or we worry about how we will be perceived by others. But the image of God in us invites us to live with a sense of joy and to live with a sense of excitement and to live with a sense of anticipation of what might come next. We too often are overcome because we worry about what life has in store for us as though God has no say in the matter. Or if we recognize that God has a say in the matter, we worry about what God has in store for us. Oh man, what's He going to require of me now? What's He going to call me to do now? Goodness gracious, what am I getting myself into? We worry about what God has in store for us as though God cannot be trusted. But because we've been made in His image, and because that image is, is one that, that, that finds joy in others, we ought to live with a sense of joy and excitement and anticipation. Our lives ought to be characterized by celebration. This does not mean that every day we live we ought to be giddy. Then we ought to be thrilled about every disappointment that we face in life. But it does mean that there ought to be some stamp of celebration and joy and thrill in our lives. When the early church spoke of, of God, they used a, uh, a term that's kind of an, an odd term. And it was an odd image to be used of the triune God. But they spoke of the term perichoresis. If you know what choreography is, you know that this was a term that meant to dance. The great dance of the triune God. Of three persons giving and receiving. Dancing around one another in joy and excitement and anticipation. It was in the context of that shared life that God the Father would look to the Son and say, you know what? Let's make more. Let's make man in our image after this likeness. And when we dance, we express joy and love, we, ex- we ex- express excitement, but we express also that sense of anticipation. Worrying about getting our feet stepped on. Worrying about twisting an ankle. Worrying about following the lead. And so fourthly, we should live by faithful trust. Jesus spoke of this unusual peace that He was offering His people through His Spirit. My peace I give to you, and I give that peace not as the world gives. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let your hearts be afraid. 
We should live by faithful trust as we are invited to take part in that triune and eternal dance. Our lives ought to be characterized by following His lead. And not just by following His lead, but by always following His lead. That can't be done except by trust. There is no faith except in obedience. There is no real obedience except in faith. We might try to convince ourselves or convince God, I cannot obey until I believe. But the fact is, we will never believe until we obey. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, writing in the midst of Nazi persecution as a pastor, a young pastor in Nazi Germany, he said, faith is only real when there is obedience, never without it. And faith only becomes faith in the act of obedience. We should live by faithful trust. Trusting Him to lead and following His lead. Trusting in the peace that He offers us in the midst of trouble, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of the mysteries of life and not knowing what's next, not knowing what is to come, not knowing how all the pieces fit together. We should live by faithful trust in Him. And that trust ought to bring with it that sense of joy and excitement and anticipation. And as we enjoy the joy of God, we ought to share that by living for the sake of others. And all this can only be done not as we live for ourselves and not as we live by ourselves, but only as we live in community together. We've been created in God's image. We have been redeemed by God's image. And God's image in us is being restored and recreated as we find ourselves alive in Him. As we step out into that dance, as we take God up on His offer to enter in. May our lives be lived with the unwavering faith of one who says, Yes, Lord, I want what you have for me. I want to get involved in what you're doing in my life and what you're doing through my life in the world. Let's pray.